We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash BE. This special edition of the Transformative Principle podcast is part of the, or is the webinar that I did with Justin Bader yesterday. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, if you're interested, go to the link in the show notes at transformativeprinciple.org slash episode 1002. All right. Welcome, Mary Ellen. Hey, there we go. All right. I think you might have to uh, click the microphone button there, Jethro. There's a separate. Uh, there we there go. go. Yep. Got it. All right. Good morning, everybody. So glad you're here. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, sending out the invite and uh, rounding everybody up on a Wednesday morning. It's pretty early there, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's seven o'clock here in Kodiak. Good deal. Good deal. What time does the sun come up this time of year? Um, sun came up now. about uh, two, uh, two hours ago or so. So it's nice living in Alaska. <laughs> Good deal. Good deal. All right. Well, hopefully people are getting uh, signed in to where they're able to hear. So we got Peggy, Kevin, Mary Ellen, Andrew. Welcome, everyone. And uh, thanks very much for being here. So I'm assuming that people have a little bit of time left in the school year on the the West Coast. Is that correct for you, Jethro? Yeah, I've I've got just one more day. Oh wow, tomorrow. one more day. Yep. Good deal. I know in Seattle we went well into June, um, and then in uh, Arkansas last week was kind of last week, so we've been out for a while. But uh, yeah, varies quite a bit, and it's always a, a little bit of a wild season to to wrap things up. Yes, it is. No matter what you have planned, things are always going to be wild and crazy at the end. So you just <laughs> got to be prepared for that. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, hey, while we're uh, waiting for people to get signed in, I think we're probably just about ready to get started. But uh, I wanted to mention, uh, Jethro, the podcast that you did not too long ago with Daniel Bauer. Um, and can you remind me, was that on his podcast or was that on your podcast? Uh well, we go back and forth, so I think the latest <laughs> one was on his podcast, yeah. 
That was a really good one because uh, you you talked in some depth about a lot of the initiatives that your school had been pursuing mm-hmm. over the past couple of years as, as you've been principal there and the, the work that had been accomplished. And uh, I have to say that was a lot of fun to listen to and very inspiring. So, Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a really great experience being the principal here in Kodiak, and uh, I'm looking forward to a new adventure in a different school and um, hoping to just become better as I as I move to a new school and, and leave the bad things behind and do the good things, take the good things with me. <laughs> yeah. Where are you headed to? Remind me where, where uh, to Tanana middle school in Fairbanks, where the Fairbanks. sun comes up even earlier in the summer and goes down <laughs> even earlier in the winter. <laughs> good deal. Good deal. Well, very exciting to, uh, see what has, uh, transpired in your school and, and, uh, as you said, what you're taking with you to your next school. So congratulations on, on that move. Thank you. Um, and you've also got the uh, Transformative Leadership Summit coming up this summer. Is that correct? That's right. The Transformative Leadership Summit will be July 31st through August 8th, and it should be a pretty awesome experience. Got you on there as well as about 30 other amazing leaders. And uh, that's it, transformativeleadershipsummit.com. So it'll be a great opportunity. Great, great, great. InformativeLeadershipSummit.com. Yeah, that was a lot of fun last year and very much looking forward to, to this year's summit. So fabulous. All right, I'll put the link in the chat here. I'm sure everybody who's on your uh, mailing list has heard about that, but just in case they're not signed up, Peggy says the last Transformative Leadership Summit was awesome. Thanks, Peggy. You're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. All right. Well, I'm going to switch over to slides, and hopefully we won't lose anybody when we do that. Um, and then we do have to pop up a webcam for that. So I'm going to disable my webcam. Oh, if you can see, and Jethro, I think your mic will probably still work. I don't know if you muted yourself, but we can still talk. It's just we can't have webcam on at the same time as slides. Um, so let me know if you can still hear either in the chat or uh, live if you'd like to. And Jethro, please feel free to ch- chime in verbally. Yep, I, if I will. And thank you. And uh, I'm going to um, be sticking around here. So just want to make sure you could hear me still. Got my microphone yep. on. Thank you. Yep, sure can. All right. And everybody else, if you could let us know in the chat, if you can still hear us, sometimes we lose audio when we switch over between slides and webcam. So I just want to make sure that that didn't happen. Uh, and I want to say welcome to Michelle, who I don't think we greeted yet. So welcome. So just let us know that you can hear and uh, Jethro and I can hear each other in real time because we're in as presenters. Uh, and then there's about a 10 second delay for everyone else. So just uh, if you, if it feels like the chat is a little bit behind the, uh, the, live discussion that we're having verbally, then, uh, then that's why there's just a little bit of a delay because we stream through YouTube and that just takes a few seconds. All right. Kevin says, good morning. Peggy says hearing great. So I think we are good to go. And, uh, I think we got everybody signed in here and all right. Michelle says she can hear fabulous. All right. Well, let's go ahead and kick things off then. Welcome, everyone, to Becoming a Learning Organization, Leading for Sustained Improvement. I'm Justin Bader from the Principal Center, and I'm joined today by my good friend Jethro Jones from Transformative Principal. How are you doing there, Jethro? Which he probably muted himself, which would be a smart thing to do. So <laughs> I'll try to give you a little more warning. 
But uh, we'll go ahead and uh, jump right in, and we'll do some uh, some introductions in just a second. But our focus for this session today is on the essential question of how we can turn our school's strategic plans into focused agendas for the coming year. And what I mean by moving from a strategic plan into a focused agenda is that you probably have some sort of document in your school that specifies a vision and goals and all kinds of plans, and it's probably a very large document. And honestly, in most schools, it's more than you can functionally work from to really pursue uh, a focused set of goals with excellence. So we're going to talk about that kind of zooming in process uh, to create a focused agenda for the coming year. We'll talk about how to use improvement mapping to get everyone clear on how things are supposed to work when we adopt an improvement strategy, getting clear on the theory of action behind that. We'll talk about understanding your leadership theory of action and how you impact student learning personally and how you can use that to avoid getting pulled in too many directions. We'll talk about staff readiness for change. I have a, a great model that I did not invent, but I'm very excited about applying to schools. It's been around for several decades uh, and I think has a lot to teach us about how we implement change because we normally do it in a, a way that doesn't work too well. We'll talk about assessing your staff's readiness for change and and dealing with resistance. We'll talk about organizational learning and actually making sure that when we do something new, that it either makes things better or results in organizational learning or both in contrast to just the, the activity that we tend to, uh, to kind of get pulled into. And we'll talk about creating bandwidth for improvement work. So let's do some uh, quick introductions. If you have uh, greeted us in the chat but not told us who you are. I would love to know who's joining us so I can see first names. But tell us in the chat a little bit about who you are and where you're joining us from, maybe what your role is in education, what you're up to these days. So if you'll locate the chat feature on the uh, should be on the right-hand side of your screen next to my slides, you should be able to type in there and just tell me what you do and who you are. And Jethro, you can come on and introduce yourself because I didn't uh, I didn't make a slide for you, but you're uh, our gracious host today. Well, thanks. <laughs> so I'm Jethro Jones, host of the Transformative Principal Podcast and the Transformative Leadership Summit. And uh, just, um, as I mentioned before, transitioning from Kodiak to Fairbanks uh, as a, in a principal role at middle schools and uh, excited to be here chatting with y'all and a big, huge fan of what Justin is doing. Well, likewise, thanks so much for uh, for hosting today, and I'm very much looking forward to the uh, Transformative Leadership Summit this summer. Had a blast last year checking out those sessions, and hope, hope everyone does that. And uh, Kevin is joining us from Phoenix and is part of uh, your mastermind, Jethro, Andrew from Chicago, and Michelle from Battle Creek, Michigan. So we've got a great group today. All right. A little bit about my background. So as I said, I'm with the Principal Center, which I started in 2012 after being a principal in Seattle Public Schools. And uh, it's been my full-time work since then to support principals in building capacity for instructional leadership. And we do a lot in the, the realm of productivity, strategic planning, things like that. And we'll have a book out later this year from Solution Tree called Now We're Talking. And uh, that'll be something that you can hear more from me about later down the road uh, in regard to classroom walkthroughs. But for today, 
we're focused on strategic planning. We're focused on not the act of making a big, huge strategic plan, but on the act of, of going from that big comprehensive plan down to a focused agenda. And I like to say that deciding what matters is the first act of leadership. And I think often when we're doing strategic planning, we take the easy way out of, of this challenge and we don't actually decide what matters. And instead, we try to throw in everything. If anybody has a suggestion, if anybody has a goal, if anybody has a priority, we try to work that in. And I believe if we're going to actually accomplish our goals with excellence, we need to zoom in more. We need to decide what matters most. So I have a question for you, and I'd like everyone to answer this in the chat, if you would, so that we can get some great participation here. And uh, welcome, everyone. Welcome, Amber, and uh, anyone else who is joining us that I haven't already reached out to. I'd like to ask you, in your school, what do you really want? What do you most want to happen? And what are some of your biggest priorities? You know, we all have a vision statement for our school. Every strategic plan has some sort of big picture goal. You might have a slogan, a mission statement, a vision statement that is on paper somewhere that hopefully is, is shared to some degree by your staff, that is supported to some degree by your, your district or whatever organization you're, you're working under the umbrella of. But I want to ask you individually as a leader, what is your vision for your school? What do you specifically want to happen? Let me know in the chat. What is it that you want to happen? And one of the things that stands out to me that I, I remember writing on a sticky note and sticking on my little bulletin board right by my desk is that I wanted our school to be deliberately teaching strategies to students so that they could take control of their own learning. And that took different forms over the years, but I remember very deliberately framing that for myself as something that I wanted to see happen. And it wasn't even really written in our strategic plan, but it was kind of my, my backdrop for everything. It was my focus as a leader. Andrew says, switch from textbook-driven culture to standards-driven culture in five years. Kevin says, healthy educator and student relationships that create measurable change in learning outcomes. Love it. Peggy says, building a strong community with strong interpersonal relationships among all stakeholders. Love it. And you'll notice that none of these are SMART goals. And I think that's not an accident at all. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of SMART goals. I like SMART goals. But they're not our starting point. Because SMART goals are, are a tool for measurement. They're not what we ultimately want. And we've been trained to write strategic plans with SMART goals, right? Everyone has to have data. They have a data source. We have a timeline. We have action steps. But I think we've got to begin the process of becoming a learning organization by deciding what we really, truly, ultimately want. Because it's easy to optimize for the wrong things. It's easy to pursue goals that take us away from what we truly care about. Michelle says, I want every student to believe in their abilities and to feel supported in learning. Love it. Love it. And I think it's, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, an odd factor in our profession that if you try to write a goal like that, people will say, Oh, that's not specific enough. And there are, of course, you know, there, there is a time and a place for specificity, but I think we've got to start with what we really, really want. Amber says, I want teachers to move from existing on their own islands to being learner centered together. Love it. Okay, so keep that vision 
in mind. Keep that true north priority as a leader in mind. And, and kind of imagine that as a garden. Imagine that as a garden that you want to cultivate. You want your school to be that kind of garden where your vision flourishes. And things that are inconsistent with that vision are simply not allowed to be there. You know, the, the conflict, the negativity, the uh, low expectations that, that might try to crop up are just not allowed to be there because they're inconsistent with that vision. This is a picture of Bouchard Gardens in Victoria, B.C. When I was a principal in Seattle, we had the opportunity to go up for a weekend and, and visit uh, Victoria and, and go to uh, gardens there on Vancouver Island. And this is a, a pretty interesting place. Jethro, I don't know if you've ever been down to Bouchard Gardens from... Uh, it's a dream. It's a, it looks amazing. Yeah, take the boat down. I don't know if you can get a boat from uh, where you are, but it is is just a gorgeous place. And um, one of the things that really struck me about Bouchard Gardens is just the intentionality, right? There's there's none of this uh, there's none of this like dandelions popping up in random places, right? They have a very high degree of intentionality about what's there, and a very strong commitment to making sure that everything that you see is there for a reason. And I think if we have that same degree of intentionality, if we say in our school, this is what we are going to do, this is how we are going to operate, and at the same time, by the same stroke, there's this whole other list of things that are not going to be a part of that. That, to me, is what really sets apart any old you know, vacant lot or a patch of, you know, patch of land from a beautiful garden like this. So I want to ask you, in the, uh, the garden that is your school, what is the bandwidth that you're working from? How much are you taking on and trying to pack into that garden? Because one of the things you'll see whenever you go to a garden is that, you know, there might be a lot going on, but choices have been made. You know, not every plant on earth grows in Bouchard Garden. So my question for you is, uh, number one, how many initiatives do you have in progress in your school? And number two, how many hours of staff PD time do you have per year? And Jethro, you said 34, and I know I listened to your podcast with Daniel Bauer about those initiatives. Uh, what, what were some of those initiatives and, and what time frame were we talking about for those 34? Yeah, so that was uh, over three years. I'd say the big one is uh, the trauma-informed approach that we've been taking with our students. Mm -hmm. And then secondary to that have been things like um, flexible seating for our students that doesn't really require a lot of PD time. Um, but it does take time in and of itself to um, to know what that looks like and takes time for teachers to, um, you know, rearrange their classrooms to meet that that desire. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great distinction, I think, because um, some things require a ton of PD time. And I'll share an example of the uh, the math curriculum adoption that happened in Seattle in, I want to say, about 2011. Uh, tons and tons of time. Right. It took weeks of training for staff, you know, probably a full week of, of staff, uh, staff training for elementary teachers. And then we have other things that, you know, like flexible seating that you could implement pretty quickly, maybe a little bit of an orientation for staff, but really it's not, you know, it's not weeks and weeks of training. And our capacity to succeed with those has a great deal to do with finding the right time and finding the, the right format for implementing those um, so 34 definitely is, uh, is quite a few over a three year period. And, and, uh, I'd encourage people to listen to that podcast where you, where you talk about that with Daniel. That's a great conversation to tune into. 
Kevin says, uh, really just three, very few in progress. Andrew says, uh, just, uh, just a few initiatives in progress and about 30 hours of PD toward the front of the year. Kevin says about a hundred hours. Uh, Michelle says three initiatives and 30 hours. And Michelle says, I've been creative in finding more time to work with staff. Yeah. hundred hours is fantastic. Um, but I think if we, if we really look at both the things that you care about and the things that are in your strategic plan, as well as the things that your district or state or province or whomever uh, also asks you to do, often we find that we have almost as many initiatives as hours in the gear of PD time. You know, often we'll find that we're doing this and we're doing that and we're doing the other thing, and we really can't devote a ton of time to any of them. Or if we're going to devote a substantial amount of time to one thing, it really just needs to be that one thing that gets the emphasis and not trying to, to split that time evenly among 20 or 30 or 100 priorities. So when we exercise that strategic choice, that kind of curation of, of what goes on in our school, we can avoid the kind of weeds cropping up every, everywhere phenomenon that I think is so normal in our in our world of, of educational leadership. I think too often we allow things to creep in because we believe that we're supposed to, right? People tell us uh, we have mandates. People tell us we have district priorities we're supposed to implement. And uh, teachers have ideas. They bring ideas back from conferences and committees come up with plans. And if we're not incredibly careful and incredibly intentional, simply too much can be going on. And when we have too much going on, we end up with kind of a systems problem. And it's, it's almost kind of a chaos theory type problem. When we have so much going on, we lose the ability to figure out what's working and what's not working. So I believe that if we are going to cultivate the kind of schools that we want, we need to make sure that our schools are learning organizations that do the right things well, instead of trying to do everything. So if we are going to have an immaculate garden like Bouchard Gardens, we need to be purposeful about what we allow to grow in that garden. We need to do the right things well, rather than try to grow every plant on earth and do everything. So I wanted to jump into a definition of a learning organization here, since that is our topic, becoming a learning organization. I believe a learning organization is one that continuously improves by making strategic choices and by learning from the consequences of those choices. Okay, so I'm going to paste that in the chat. That definition will be important to us as we go along, but I do want to move ahead. So a learning organization is one that continuously improves by making strategic choices and learning from the consequences of those choices. Here is the problem. The problem is that often we don't learn from the consequences of those choices because they don't have many consequences in a lot of schools. We need to treat every change opportunity, every change initiative in schools as a bit of an experiment and look at it like an organizational scientist and say, what can we learn from this change, from this effort, whether or not it succeeds? So let's talk about learning from failure. And, and let's talk about what organizational learning itself is. We defined a learning organization, but what is organizational learning? I believe it's the process of developing policies, procedures, and practices that lead to continuous improvement. So not too, you know, not too much rocket science in that definition, pretty straightforward. Organizational learning is about developing policies, procedures, and practices that lead to continuous 
improvement. So we figure out what works and we institutionalize it. We systematize it. We just say, this is how we do things in our school. We do what works. We stop doing what doesn't work. And over time, we get better and better. And I think that's typically the vision, right? We want to move toward continuous improvement. We want to stop doing things that are not working. We want to make those decisions together. As, as Peggy says, it's important to think about who is making the choices. Absolutely. It's not just uh, one person, but it is definitely a, uh, you know, a set of team decisions that people need to be bought into. But often we, we find ourselves dealing with a particular challenge when it comes to learning what works and what doesn't work. And to introduce this challenge, I want to quote at length John Hattie. John Hattie says something rather surprising in his book, Visible Learning. He says, almost everything works. So he's asking, uh, answering the question of, of what works in education? What is best practice? And Hattie says, almost everything works. 90% of all effect sizes in education are positive. Of the 10% that are negative, about half are expected, for example, dis effects of disruptive students. Thus, about 95% of all the things we do have a positive influence on achievement. When teachers claim that they're having a positive effect on achievement or when a policy improves achievement, this is almost a trivial claim. Virtually everything works. One only needs a pulse and we can improve achievement. And I think this gets at the heart of the challenge for us in cultivating that garden. If everything works, how can we say no to anything? And since we have trouble saying no to anything that works, we end up with an unmanageable stack of initiatives in front of us. You know, if a burger is great, well, how about a foot tall burger? How about a quadruple half pounder? You know, what's, what's the problem here? Simply doing more of a good thing is not a sustainable solution, right? If a little is good is a lot better. Well, my chemistry professors like to be really clear that if a little is good, a lot is not always better. And there's a, a, a practice that I see occurring in our profession that I call best practice stacking. You know, if we know that a particular instructional strategy or a particular improvement effort has a certain effect size. Let's say it has an effect size of 0.8, which is really good, right? We want high effect sizes and 0.8 is a good effect size. If we do 10 things that have an effect size of 0.8, does that mean they have an effect size of 8.0? Well, no, it doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. We can't simply stack best practice on top of best practice on top of best practice. Everything works, but we can't do everything. And I'm convinced that that is a lot of our problem in a lot of schools today is that we try to do too many good things at once. And as a result, a couple things happen. Sometimes it's directly bad and they conflict with one another, but sometimes it's more that we get overwhelmed that as, as a school, we can't pay attention to that many things at once. And when we can't pay attention to that many things at once, we lose the ability to learn to monitor what's going on, to see how it's working, and to make improvement decisions as a result of that. Imagine that you have a kid, and I know, Jethro, you've got kids, I've got kids, I know probably a lot of people on here have kids or have kids vicariously as, as educators, and you know, there's a natural impulse to protect our kids, right? We put them in car seats, we try not to drop them on the floor <laughs> when they're little. You know, we want to protect our kids. But we have to realize at a certain point that we can't 
bubble wrap them. We cannot send them out into the world covered in protective packaging like something from Amazon. We have to send our kids out in the world to, you know, learn how to walk, to get skinned knees occasionally as they, you know, take their steps and, and fall. That's just part of life. And it's also part of running an improvement initiative in your school. But often we don't like allowing our improvement initiatives to skin their needs. We try to protect them. We try to bubble wrap them. And we try to do things like uh, protecting them from failing. So let's say we start something new. We adopt a new curriculum or we adopt a new program. And we're so committed to making sure that it works that we go all in on preventing it from failing. So we do things like we say, well, we're not going to pilot this. We're just going to really be committed. We're going to go all in. We're going to all do this at once. It's going to be ongoing. It's not going to have a, a deadline. We're going to make sure that we have plenty of staff for it. Uh, we're not going to give ourselves any harsh goals that we might judge ourselves against because we don't want people to get discouraged. We really want this to succeed from the get-go. And we don't want to consider tough questions like, uh, is this really worth it? Is this better than something else that we could be doing? And as a result of that, we have lots of things that are working in our schools because they have been bubble wrapped. We have gone to great lengths to make those initiatives succeed, and they are succeeding. But as a result, when none of them fail, when we don't have any comparative data, we can't do that cost-benefit analysis and decide, what do I actually need to stop doing? What is not working as well as it should be working? And as a result, we end up with far too much going on. And when we insulate our effort from failure, we fail to learn. And so we repeat the cycle of more. When everything works, we end up with too much going on. We end up with a lack of clarity about what's actually working, about what's actually producing our results. So I want to give you a set of tools today that you can use to figure out what's actually working best in your school and to figure out when something is not working the way that it's supposed to. Because sometimes things quote unquote work, you know, John, John Hattie has his everything works kind of in quotes. Sometimes it's not that it's deliberately, you know, that it's dramatically failing. It's that we've got too much going on and we need to refocus. And that's hard for us to do. So as I said, I want to give you a set of tools for doing that, for making failure obvious for figuring out which initiatives are producing the results you want and which are not and figuring out how we can manage that process of change to maximize organizational learning and maximize the results that we're getting. So I call this improvement mapping and it's essentially a process of developing theories of action. Let me grab a drink of water here. Peggy says not working is easier to evaluate than failure. Yeah, often we have a lot of different criteria for whether something is working, right? Are people enjoying it? Uh, are they succeeding with it? Where are we in the, the kind of adoption curve with it? Which is a separate question from what kind of results is it producing? So we'll talk about that kind of adoption curve as we go along. So what is a theory of action? A theory of action is kind of the, the foundation for any experiment that you would do as an organizational scientist. Uh, you might have also heard this called a logic model. A theory of action is an if-then set of cause and effect relationships that articulates how something is supposed to work. Okay, so it's a very simple kind of map of if we're going to do this initiative, what's, what's supposed to happen and how will we monitor that? How will we judge our success? Uh, you know, what, what do we need to base that? on. 
So here's an example of a theory of action. Let's say your school is going to become a PBIS school. Do you guys have PBIS in your area? Jethro, is that a, is that a current acronym? Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. We do PBIS things, but don't do PBIS itself. So we know of it, but don't do exactly it. And we don't call it that. So we do similar things. Interesting that, that that's how we approach it. And I'm looking at what you got on the screen right now. So fascinating. Yeah. And you mentioned that you guys do like a trauma informed yep. model for certain things, right? Yep. And that would be more a better way to describe our approach to discipline and behavior than PBIS. Right. And, and often a lot of schools will say they're doing both or they're doing that and, you know, two other things yeah, and restorative sure. justice or, you know, and, and those things are not necessarily incompatible. But when we get clear on how they work, we can figure out where there might be misalignments, where there might be confusion, and where we might need to really uh, choose our focus from from time to time. Um, so I've got PBIS up as kind of a uh, a school level example uh, because PBIS was something that was brought to me by my staff when I was an elementary principal. And they said, "Hey, I think we really need to do this. Uh, we've got problems with kids being noisy in the hallways, and it's disruptive. So let's do PBIS, and here's how it's supposed to work. If we teach all of our students how to act in the hallway, if we have these common school wide expectations for how we act in the hallway, then every class." can practice those and all students will, will learn the same expectations. And then as a result, we'll have safer, quieter hallways. So that was kind of the logic model or the theory of action for uh, the, the specific aspects of PBIS that we were interested in as a school. So we, we basically did that over the, the next two years and that was pretty successful. But what worked out especially well was the clarity around all students learning and practicing because we had a, a bit of a problem with a few grade levels, not taking, you know, the teachers in a few grade levels, not taking that practice aspect pretty seriously. They just kind of talk to their class a little bit at the beginning of the year and not really do the same kind of deliberate practice in the hallway with their kids that you'd see maybe the kindergarten class is doing. And that was what led to a bit of frustration. And honestly, why uh, we came to this point where we needed to implement PBIS. So when we're clear, we can figure out how this is supposed to work, we can get everyone on the same page, and we can figure out if this is something that we want to pursue. A theory of action can also help you figure out when you've got a good idea that might work, but that is not the best use of resources. For example, let's say you want to uh, raise math scores. You want your students to do better on your state test in math because you know that that is a gateway for them. You, you know, they need to succeed in math. So somebody at a faculty meeting raises their hand and says, hey, we need to do a parent math night because we've got this new curriculum and it's different from how we taught math when, when their parents were kids and it's confusing to parents and they complain about it a lot. So let's do a parent math night. The parents can attend and then they'll be able to help with homework more effectively. And then the kids will get more out of that homework and they'll be less confused the next day when it's time to move on. And we'll have to do less reteaching. And as a result, we'll be able to move faster. Kids will understand more as we go along. And that should lead to the outcome we want, which is higher math scores. All right, so this one is a lot longer, right? There's a lot more, uh, there are a lot more steps here in that cause and effect chain. And because of that level of detail, we can see a few things that might be hidden if we just say, let's do a parent math night because we need to really work on math this year as a school. And if I just say, hey, you know, everybody, we're going to do a parent math night this year because we need to work on math as a school, it might be that no one challenges me on that rationale 
on that, that logic that I'm sharing. But if we unpack that and, and really break it down step by step of how this is supposed to work, we might find that some of the assumptions in there are a little bit questionable. For example, someone in our faculty meeting, a brilliant faculty, might raise their hand and say, well, Justin, have you considered that the parents who attend a parent math night that we might offer might not actually be the parents that we hope attend? We might be missing a lot of people who maybe work at night and are not currently able to attend school events or help their kids with homework. So maybe the solution to our higher math score challenge is not that we need to have a parent math night. Maybe there's something else that we could do that would have a more direct and greater impact. And it's not that having a parent math night is a bad idea. It's not that they don't work. It's not that it's a terrible idea. It's just that there might be something else that's a better opportunity for us. And when we're clear on how that is supposed to work, we can make better decisions about how to cultivate that vision, that garden that we want in our schools instead of doing more and more. But the pressure on educators is often to just say yes to everything. Well, you know, who could, who could really criticize the idea of a parent math night? Surely that's a great plan, right? And, you know, who, who is not a team player? Who would object to having a parent math night? Well, I think as leaders, we've got to give people permission to object when we're not making the best use of our resources. We've got to empower people to think through the logic of how an improvement effort is supposed to work. Okay, so I want to encourage you to give that a try with your staff. When you have an idea, map it out and say, well, how is this supposed to work? First we do this, and then we do that, and then here's how you know the cause and effect chain is supposed to work. And if you get into some questionable assumptions, or you can't even map it out because you get to one stage and it's just a question mark. Well, how is that supposed to improve instruction? I don't know. If you can't explain it, then it's probably a plan that needs some, uh, you know, some more thought. Hey, Justin. Yeah. I just want to chime in here real quick and, and state, you know, a lot of times what we start with is an idea. And part of the, the issue is starting with a, an end piece of what do we want to accomplish and being able to differentiate those two. And so, you know, in my new school, I got an email from a staff member who said, we need to do this particular practice every day, school-wide. That's what we need to do. And, you know, I, I appreciate this because I'm going to be able to go through that and say, what are the outcomes we're actually looking for because of that? And what are the steps in between? So this is a very valuable tool for any idea of any initiative that comes up. So thanks for sharing this. Yeah, because I, I think the reality is people are going to bring us great ideas all the time, right? Especially if you're, if you're new to a role, if you're changing schools, people are going to bring you all kinds of ideas. And it's not that any of those ideas are bad ideas. It's just you've got to make choices. You know, you've got to make choices to focus. And it's not that you have to make choices to exclude things from your playbook. And I think of your strategic plan as your playbook. You know, for example, maybe bell work is something that's specified in your school's improvement plan that all, all classes are going to begin, you know, b with bell work and you're going to have bell to bell instruction. But as to whether that can actually be a focus for the coming year, I think that's, that's kind of a separate question. So when you're thinking about your st strategic plan, I want you to think about that as your playbook, you know, kind of the library of all the things you can do as a school to improve, but not necessarily your specific focus. 
right? So your strategic plan is, is kind of a big comprehensive document and it solves a lot of problems for a lot of people. It solves compliance challenges. It represents the consensus of your staff. It's comprehensive and it contains rationale or instructional theories of action, uh, you know, for a lot of the practices that you use, but it doesn't create that focus that you need in any given year where, you know, in your staff newsletter at the, the beginning of a staff meeting, at the beginning of the year, in all of your communication with your staff, you know, what do you emphasize? You can't emphasize everything in a 27 page strategic plan. And I've reviewed strategic plans that were that long that were 50 pages, you know, and it's not that those are bad plans because they're solving a lot of problems. They're achieving a lot of different purposes, but they don't create focus. And for focus, I believe you need a game plan. So what do I need? What do I mean by a game plan? I mean a way to make choices about what goes in that garden. There are beautiful flowers that do not grow in Bouchard Gardens because they did not fit the game plan for that garden at that time. And I believe as leaders, we have got to create strategic focus for ourselves at the beginning of a new year, whenever we're turning over a new leaf, whenever we're planning our PD and our improvement work for the coming year, we've got to begin with that focus because we can't do everything well. We have to make choices. And then after we've made those choices, we can do the implementation planning that's going to set us up for success. So in doing that implementation planning, I believe we need to create three kinds of theory of action. And we've mapped out a couple of examples, but I want to break these down into three specific types of theory of action because they affect different people in different ways. They all kind of work in similar ways, but the three types of theory of action that I want to encourage you to look for and to try to use as you're deciding on your priorities for the year are instructional improvement and leadership theories of action. Okay. So an instructional theory of action is about what happens in the classroom. You know, what are we doing to ensure that students learn things like curriculum, instruction, and assessment, and mapping out how is that strategy supposed to work? You know, for example, if we're doing exit tickets, how are exit tickets supposed to student learning? Let's get that if we're going to do it. And then we can figure out, are we doing it? What adjustments do we need to make? How's that work for us? And I want to specifically caution again, a particular for your instructional of action. There's a particular phrase that has become dangerous in our thinking. And that phrase is research-based or best-based. Please saying something is research-based is not having a theory. They are two different things because research-based just means that it's been researched and maybe there's an effect size listed in visible learning or uh, some of Bob Marzano's work. Simply knowing that a practice is effective is not the same as mapping out for ourselves how that practice is supposed to work. For example, you might adopt a research-based new uh, science curriculum. You know, you've got new science standards coming out. The next generation science standards have been adopted in a lot of places. You might say, well, we need to adopt this new curriculum that's aligned to those standards. Well, what's the theory of action for how that is supposed to work? Well, this is just a basic one. We could be more detailed than this, but we could say, well, if we adopt a new curriculum that's aligned to the new standards, and then in class, we address those standards more effectively through the lessons that are included in that curriculum, then we should get higher test scores. Well, that one's pretty straightforward, and it's directly about instruction. And we could be much more detailed. We could say, well, in order for 
us to address those standards more effectively, one of the pieces that needs to be in place that's not specified here is time. Part of the problem is that we haven't been setting aside time to teach science in our elementary classrooms. And when you're clear on how this is all supposed to work, then you can figure out what those missing pieces are and make sure that we're not adopting a new curriculum without time in the schedule to actually teach it and things like that. Okay, so the second type of theory of action is your improvement theory of action. And this is what happens behind the scenes. So often outside the classroom, maybe it's the work that teachers are doing together in their teams. Maybe it's the PD that you're doing. Maybe it's the, the focus that you have as a staff for the year. And getting clear on your improvement theory of action, I think is really critical for avoiding kind of, kind of make work, right? Often we, we get into improvement projects that feel like make work and people say, why are we doing this? Don't we have to go get our classrooms ready? Don't we have to, you know, can't we go plan our lessons and, you know, just get ready for the school year? When people don't understand how an improvement effort is supposed to work with a clear improvement theory of action, that can really feel like make work and like a waste of time. So if you're having your staff do something like uh, work in professional learning communities, you want to be ultra clear about how that is supposed to work. And often you'll find that improvement theories of action are a little bit longer in their, their sequence of steps, right? Because we're doing things that are slightly farther removed from teaching and learning. Uh, there's, there's a longer logic chain, a longer set of cause and effect relationships that we have to specify. Uh, and we can specify those either with kind of arrows like this, or we could specify them with just a list. And often when you're, you're just jotting down your ideas about a theory of action, it's easier to do this as a list. But let's say that in your school, you're trying to get teachers to plan collaboratively. That's a big improvement effort that you're pursuing in your school. And you might say to yourself something like, well, if teachers engage in collaborative planning, then their lessons will more effectively address the standards because they've worked together, they've identified the gaps, they've identified things that they're covering that they don't need to. So the lessons will be more tightly aligned to the standards because they're collaborating. And then students will master those standards that are tested on the, the state exam. And then our test scores will improve. When we've got a theory of action like that, Teachers can discuss that. Teachers can say, well, I think this is mostly correct, but maybe let's talk about this piece here. Maybe there's a part that needs to be rethought or that needs to be tweaked a little bit so that it can get us more directly to the outcome that we want. So that is an improvement theory of action. And then the third type is leadership of action. And leadership of action all about figuring out how you make sense in your school, how you contribute the improvement work you contribute to teaching and learning. And often we believe that our contribution is one of simply being servant leaders of simply doing whatever needs to be done to support the work. But I think if we're honest with ourselves about how act student learning, we realize that there are some things that are better use of our time than others. And if we have any initiatives going, if we have so many improvement priorities we have to make choices and we have to choose what to stop doing. So I want to ask you to think about this for a moment and, and share with me in the chat, if you would, what is something that you know is going to seriously demand your attention in the coming year? What is it that you are going to specifically need to focus on as a leader to create success in the coming year? Yeah, you want to jump in there, Jethro? 
Yeah, as uh, as people are writing, I just want to comment about, you know, recognizing what your own personal leadership strengths and abilities and weaknesses are. You that last slide about what should I stop doing is really really important. And so there are it in in my current school, Kodiak Middle School before um there was a there was a sunshine committee that didn't do a lot to bring a lot of good to to the staff and um and that was you know uh, the principal played a large role in that that's not really my wheelhouse of strength and so i gave that to somebody else and she has done more than i would have ever even thought like she just barely t- tomorrow's the last day of school she just made a bunch of cookies for every department in the district to say thank you for all your help this year i would have never thought of that i would have never done that she is just Amazing and being able to take things off my plate and put them in the plates of people who have the skills, determination, ability to do that really ties into um, to making this kind of stuff work. Yeah, I think that's that's so critical. I think you know, again, the idea of servant leadership might prompt us to think, well, I should, I, you know, I'm the I'm the leader here. I should be making the cookies. But you know, the <laughs> the the reality is we can't focus on everything. And, and as you said, we have the talents on our team, you know, and the, just the, the different dispositions and the interests, uh, that, you know, are distributed across our staff where people can focus on those, those different things, but we've got to figure out what our contribution is. Love it. And Andrew says, improving the academic program. Yeah. We've got to figure out what to focus on and how we make a difference there. Okay, so we've talked about focus. We've talked about how we can't do everything. We've talked about how everything works in education, but that does not mean we can simply do more and more and more things and get better and better results. We've got to make some choices. We've got to cultivate that garden and decide what's going to go in there and what's not. And we've got to get very clear using theories of action about how that is all supposed to work, how it fits together, what the cause and effect relationships are supposed to be so that we can figure out uh, what's working, what we need to change, and where our opportunities for improvement are. I want to share with you now in our last little section here, a model for leading organizational learning by implementing change gradually in phases. So the traditional way of implementing change is uh, often what you'll see with a curriculum adoption. And as I mentioned, when I became a principal, we had just finished adopting a new math curriculum in Seattle public schools. And as far as I can tell, I wasn't involved in this because it was before my time, but as far as I can tell, this was very successful. We adopted a new math curriculum. A full week was set aside in the summer to pay teachers to come back early from vacation and get trained by these national trainers. And they got their hands on the materials. The materials were also shipped to their classroom so they could do the training. They could learn how everything was supposed to work. They could immerse themselves in the philosophy of the new curriculum, which was very different. And then we started it was an all-at-once change. Out with the old, in with the new. The new math curriculum was the order of the day, and it was a successful change. So all-at-once change is typically how we do things in our schools. We say, as a school, we are doing this. This is a change that we are making. But it's not the only way to make a change. And I'm going to suggest that in most schools, it's very difficult to do more than about one all-at-once change in a given year. 
simply because of the amount of time and the amount of resources that it takes. You know, our district had to come up with millions of dollars to bring in the trainers, to buy the materials, to pay teachers, to go to the training in time that wasn't ordinarily part of their contract. So it is enormously resource intensive to do all at once change. And for a lot of the things that are probably on your agenda in the coming year, things that you would like to see happen in your school, all at once change will actually insulate you from learning about the effectiveness of that change and in what you need to do to make that change uh, either a success or decide not to continue with it. And this is kind of the bubble wrapping phenomenon, right? My district bubble wrapped the heck out of the math curriculum adoption. There was no room for failure. So again, millions of dollars were allocated. Tons of extra time was allocated. We hired a math coach, which we never had before, to make sure that that change succeeded. And what that change did not do is generate a lot of organizational learning. We were not trying to experiment with that. We were just trying to bulldoze full speed ahead and make sure that that change happened. But if that's the only kind of change we know, that's going to pose a serious limit for us because we're going to run into things like we run out of time, we run out of money, and we run out of moral support from teachers. All at once change tends to generate resistance. And we had a little bit of resistance to our math curriculum. There's some philo philosophical resistance and, you know, people not wanting to do something new. And, and we had to overcome that resistance. And I will tell you, if we had been adopting three or four other all at once changes at the same time, they would not all have succeeded because the resistance would have gotten too high. So very quickly here, I want to give you a model called the diffusion of innovations model that can help you time changes and structure them in such a way that they minimize resistance and maximize learning. And this is from a book called The Diffusion of Innovations by Everett Rogers, uh, which was first written in the 1960s. It's still in print in the fourth or fifth edition. You can still buy it. And Rogers coined the term, um, a term that I'm sure you've heard and I'm sure applies to a lot of people here, called early adopters. I don't know, Jethro, you're an early adopter? Like. Uh, yeah, I think I am. <laughs> and this is actually the model that we use to do those 34 initiatives. The reason we were able to do so many is because we allowed people to choose where they were an innovator, where they were an early adopter. And the the big one overall thing was the trauma-informed care for, mm. for our school. And, you know, we still have some laggards who are not quite there yet. And that's okay. We recognize that and we're okay with it. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know you would actually uh, use this, this particular model. That's fabulous. And there, yeah, and there's no way you could have done 34 all at once changes without that kind of phase in over. Yeah, a no way. Period. No. Yeah. Because what happens is when you're doing an all at once change, this group here, the early majority and the late majority occupies a ton of time for your PD, right? That's where you need to set aside a week in the summer to do the training, things like that. But here, here's how this basically works in any kind of change. And, and Rogers came up with these categories. He said, in any population, you have a small number of people who are innovators. You have a slightly larger number of people who are early adopters. And, you know, we use that term to refer to people who got the first iPhone and, you know, the first iPad and, you know, people who adopt technology quickly. But it's true for any kind of change. Then you have majority groups. You know, once something becomes kind of mainstream, uh, you've got the early majority, you've got the late majority. And once the late majority is on board, you know, like once your grandma has an iPhone, you know, the iPhone is, is here to stay, right? You know, you know, the tide has turned and most people are on board with that change. 
Then you'll always have people who are kind of holdouts and Rogers calls them laggards. I don't think he means that in an entirely mean way, but you know, in any change, we're going to have people who, who really kind of drag their feet. And when we tend to look at change, the way we tend to look at change in schools is as all at once change. And we tend to look at each of these groups having different attitudes toward change and to do it at the same time. We say, okay, everybody go for it. And the innovators are like, yes, we've already been doing this for it. The early adopters say, yes, sounds like a great The early says, okay, good to me. And the majority says, uh, I guess, whatever. And then the laggards say, over my dead body. So we have variation typically in people's attitude toward change, but we don't give variation in people's timing for change. And what this model suggests that we should do is that we should actually phase things in. We should say, when we're going to try something new, we're going to allow the innovators to mess around with it first. Let's have a makerspace. Well, no, it's not, a, it's not a mandate that every classroom has to have a makerspace, but if somebody wants to mess around with that, let them try it. Often your innovators will try things without permission. They will not even tell you that they're doing them. They're just going to do it. That's just who they are, and it's great. They learn things. They might not even tell you about their failures, but they're failing all the time. And because they're failing quickly, the consequences of that failure are not high. You know, they'll try something new in a lesson. If it doesn't work, no big deal. Move on, try something else. So the innovators are very uh, eager to try new things, and they're also very risk-tolerant. And because they try new things so often, the cost of failure is very low. And when something works, the innovators knock on the door to their neighbors and say, hey, early adopter, you ought to try this. I've been doing this for a week with my students, and it seems to be working. So the early adopters get excited, and they say, well, yeah, let me try that too. And they might come and mention it to you and say, hey, my neighbor told me about this new approach, and it's working really well for me. You should come to the next training that they're doing in our state. So you get a little team together and you go and get some people excited and say, hey, maybe we should really start to phase this in. So then you might say, hey, we're going to become a PBIS school at some point, but let's let's do a pilot project. Let's take a group of people who are kind of in this early majority category, not the, you know, not the early adopters exactly, but people who are kind of in the mainstream and say, let's try this. Let's try this approach to teaching behavioral expectations and see if we get better results. Do that pilot project and then decide, do we want to make this a whole staff change? And by the time we decide to make it a whole staff change, we've got a lot of people on board already. And everyone who might be dragging their feet a little bit is looking to the people who came before them and saying, oh, wow, they, they actually succeeded with that. That's looking pretty good. So we're able to build support as the wave kind of build. Instead of trying to push everyone through a change at once, we can time it in such a way that we learn, we climb that learning curve as the early adopters figure things out. And by the time we get to the people who are naturally the most resistant to change, we've already built a lot of momentum and we've worked through a lot of the challenges. So my message to you with the diffusion of innovations model is be okay with not implementing a change all at once across your entire staff. Allow people to experiment, allow people to try things and to pilot and to fail. And if something works, if they can work out the, you know, iron out the wrinkles in it and make it work, they can teach the next wave of people in your staff and you can figure out, well, what is it? What is that going to mean for us as a whole staff to eventually implement that? We don't have to get there tomorrow. We don't have to get there by the end of this school year. But if this is where we want to go, this is what it needs to look like, and, and we can chart that course and develop that focus. So I want to encourage you to 
develop those theories of action, to get clear on what you want, and to get a game plan together for yourself in the coming year of what you're going to focus on. Is there a particular change that you want to move through this curve, that you want to take school-wide, maybe not overnight, but in the coming year? And are there other initiatives that you know you want to get your staff clear on with clear theories of action so that you know how to proceed, how to monitor those, uh, what success looks like, and, and what actions you need to take, and what you need to say no to? I hope these have been helpful tools. And if you are interested in uh, doing more with these tools and, and others like them to develop clear theories of action, uh, we're doing a program at the Principal Center called the Instructional Leadership Intensive. And the outcome of the Instructional Leadership Intensive is that you will craft your Instructional Leadership Game Plan for the coming school year. So this is an online program that runs June 1st through July 27th. And it is 100% online. So if you are traveling or if you are concerned about being able to get to a particular place at a particular time, uh, don't worry about that. It's very flexible. So we will have video modules that we're releasing every week. And we've got some of those filmed now, and we're, we're wrapping up filming in the next couple of days here at the Principal Center. We're putting those online so that you can access each week's new training module on your schedule. And we'll also have assignments that go along with those so that you can map out you know, what is my leadership theory of action? What is my instructional theory of action for this particular initiative that we're pursuing? How is that supposed to work? And after you do those assignments, you'll have the opportunity to upload those to our discussion forum, which we call the network. And you'll have the opportunity to hop on a video conference chat with me and with other participants and get clarity on those plans and figure out the details of, you know, how is this supposed to work? What is our theory of action and how can we roll that out to our staff in a way that maximizes organizational learning? So the program is eight weeks long, and as a result of that program, you would develop an instructional theory of action, an improvement theory of action, and a leadership theory of action, and get clear on your agenda for the coming year. So those are some of the, the immediate deliverables, but I think what people are also taking away from this training that we're doing is the, the tools that you can use to have these conversations with your staff. You know, so if somebody has, somebody has a great idea in a faculty meeting, rather than say, eh, I don't know if we're going to do that this year, we can ask, how is that supposed to work? And we can map that out as a staff and then make a decision about whether that fits, about whether that is what needs to be on our agenda for the coming year. So those, those tools and those skills that you take with you, I think are going to be one of the, the most valuable outcomes. In the way of topics, uh, I'll just, go over these briefly. We'll talk about your current situation, your uh, staff's current situation, and as far as evaluations and openness to change and the diffusion of innovations model. We'll talk about developing those three types of theories of action and then get into a specific agenda for your leadership for the coming year and how you can manage all of those initiatives uh, using something that we call backlogs to prioritize and to, to avoid taking too much on at once, and then running that in a way that maximizes organizational learning. So that is just a little bit about the intensive. And if you are interested in the intensive, I want to encourage you to, to check out and I'll link in the chat here. And I think we'll have this on the slide in a second. And let me make sure the link works before I post it. And maybe that comes up. Yep. The correct link. If you go to printcenter.com TP for formative principle, our uh, just host Whoop. here today. 
principlecenter.com slash TP will take you to much more information on that page. And after, uh, you know, after you check that out, we've got a little live chat button on the page. Feel free to ask us any questions. Um, but if, if you choose to join that program, you will uh, set up a phone call with me. We'll talk one-on-one about your specific situation. And then you can get started with the modules on June 1st. You can go through those at your own pace. So if you need a few more weeks before you're in the school or you've got other things going on, you can start whenever you'd like. Go through those modules, do the work, discuss that work in our forum and in our video conference sessions, and develop your game plan for the coming year. Um, so this is a great program for principals, assistant principals, leadership teams, district teams. Um, if you are in the classroom and staying in the classroom, it's it's not as good a fit because you really do need to have a school level or a system level perspective for this to really be worth the you know worth the effort. Uh, and if you again are, are traveling, this is pretty flexible as far as timing. Uh, I'm traveling quite a bit during the summer, so we're doing a lot on video. We're doing a lot on our discussion forum, and really hope to make that uh, a deep and lasting learning experience for people. So I'm excited. We've got uh, a good 30 or so people registered uh, at this time through uh, the Principal Center. And I know if you are on this webinar, then you are here because of the uh, Transformative Principal Podcast and and Jethro. So I wanted to do something that would uh, express some some gratitude for your being here. Uh, So what we're doing, if you go to principalcenter.com slash TP, you will see that there is a $200 discount that has been applied. And Emily assures me that that has been applied. Let me actually click that and just pull that up and make sure that that is reflected. Yep. If you go to principalcenter.com slash TP, that is our special link uh, only for people who are on this webinar uh, with Jethro, uh, and you will see the $7.95 price instead of the $9.95 price. Uh, we get started on June 1st, so make sure you act quickly and uh, hop on while registration is open. We will be shutting down registration so that we can begin. We've got some things that we need to do to, to get people going and prefer to get people going all at once. So that is happening in the uh, the next couple of days. Let me know what questions you have if you are interested in joining the Instructional Leadership intensive and uh jethro i'll get you make sure that you're on the list for that as well i don't know if we've uh, actually done that yet but we'll uh, we'll get you registered here uh so that uh we have your insights as well um any questions uh let me know any questions jethro that have come to mind from from your perspective because i know this is your first time to uh or maybe this is your first time to see it maybe it's not but uh <laughs> let me know well, you know what i you- yeah looking looking through that you know i've I've had to like fight through figuring out how to do all that stuff on my own. And, um, I've, I've had the benefit of conducting a podcast for the last three and a half years that has really helped me know how to do a lot of things. Um, but you know, it's the things that you're talking about are things that highly successful principals are doing in their schools. And so, you know, if you're wondering if this is a good thing or not, it absolutely is. And I'd encourage you to, um, to join in with it with your administrative team and get everybody on the same page because, you know, I've had to figure all this stuff out on my own. And if somebody could have taught it to me, um, <laughs> you know, years ago, uh, it, it would have been a lot better. And so I've had to figure, figure a lot of it out myself. And, you know, that, um, the, bell curve that you showed with the early adopters and innovators and laggards and stuff, that mm-hmm. kind of approach I think is the only way to make uh sustainable change because if it's that all at once thing, it just, 
there's so much resistance because you're lumping everybody together and saying you must do this. And there's just all kinds of resistance. So being able to segment it out and get those on board with the things they want to be on board with doesn't take anything away from the initiatives you're doing. It just adds to it and makes it more powerful. So hmm. I'm, I'm really excited for this and um, it's going to lead right up to the um, transformative leadership summit, which if you join the leadership intensive um, through this link, then Justin's going to let me know who does that. And you'll also get the transformative leadership summit, all access pass for free as well as an added bonus, which um, I sell the last year's one for, for 500 bucks. So that will be a, a beneficial thing for you to get um, to get that as well. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE.